Mark chapter 6 this morning, and actually a beautiful backdrop, and the song just really flows so perfectly into what we're going to be studying, what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in a very practical, practical way. It is not that I am picking on the people that came up with the line, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life, though you've heard me talk about this before. But the problem with that line is, although it is ultimately true someday, if you're born again believer in Jesus Christ, then you will, you know, you will go be with him forevermore and you'll put on incorruption and it will be a glorious thing. And that is wonderful for sure. But that is not to say that our lives as Christians are smooth sailing. And when we represent Christianity or the Christian life that way, sometimes uh, we can cause people to really misunderstand and they can stumble at some point when they figure out that there are storms legitimately that this life is filled with. I liken it to the old illustration of the uh, two people that got on a flight and passenger A and passenger B, they're both told to put on parachutes. And you might liken the parachute to the Christian life. And Pastor A was told, hey, put on this parachute. It'll make it a wonderful flight. It'll make it a better flight. So he puts on the parachute. Now about halfway through, he realizes it's kind of bulky. Sometimes it gets in the way. It's not as comfortable as he would thought. People are looking at him and poking fun at him, that kind of thing. And so he says, why am I wearing this? So he takes it off. Now, Pastor B, on the other hand, was given a parachute also, but he was told, listen, uh, this parachute isn't always going to feel just right. It's not always going to be totally comfortable. You're not always going to like wearing it. But in a little while, this plane's going to go down, and when it does, you're going to be really glad that you had that parachute. And that right there kind of highlights, I think, the difference between the way in which I think sometimes Christianity is portrayed and the way I think that Christianity should be portrayed. When people look at God as if he was some kind of a make a wish upon a star kind of God, then when they find themselves in the storms of this life, they will often find themselves disenfranchised. Why would a loving God allow me to go through something like this? And yet we know, or at least we understand intellectually, that our lives would be basically fruitless if it wasn't for God intervening and allowing us to go through storms, trials, difficulties, and challenges. You want character, you want reality, you want authenticity in your life, then you have to allow yourself, you have to allow God to take you through those kinds of storms. You need to go through some storms. Now, I realize, you know, when I'm up here and I'm talking about this, that we all kind of say yes and an amen. Trials, they're good. It's all kind of theoretical. It works well, plays well in a sermon. It's good Bible talk. But if you were going to go, you know, out there to go sign up, you look, I had the men's retreat. This will be good for me. I'll grow spiritually in my walk with God. I'm going to sign up for that. But if next to that we had a sign-up sheet for heartbreak or heartache or heart disease, ain't nobody going to sign up for that. Even though you know that those things that God takes us through by his design are things that he uses to raise us up, to mature us, to help us grow in our walk with God. You know, I remember when I first began to walk with the Lord many years ago, my perception of a trial was that it was something you just kind of get through. 
You know, my idea was it was just something you survive. And maybe, you know, on the other end of it, when you come out still walking with the Lord, it will show that you loved him all along. And in a sense, I guess that is true. It's a testimony to people that we can get through a trial and we're still praising our God on the other side of that. But it is so much more. It is so much more. And those of you who, you know, have some gray hair, that have been doing this for a while, that have been worn down throughout the years, that God has put you through it, you can testify. We could all, you could stand up and say, let me tell you what God has taught me through some of the difficulties, through some of the challenges those kinds of lessons, some of which we will see. I'll try to pick out as many as I can um, in our text this morning, but suffice to say there are just some lessons uh, that you just can't get out of a book or that you can learn in this kind of format that you have to experience in practicality for yourselves. Some of you like to read and you learn that way. Some of you maybe are visual learners. Some of you perhaps maybe even get something out of what I say. I know that's a very small percentage of you, but some, in fact, may get things out of what happens here today. But I think that there are, for sure, no one could question, there are just some things that we have to learn for ourselves experientially. And that's why I think we find these disciples here in Mark chapter 6, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this storm, because it's going to teach them something and it's gonna teach them something that they would never otherwise be able to learn. Because in this trial, as opposed to Mark chapter four, where they were also in a storm, the difference was Jesus was with them. He was asleep at the stern, but he was still with them. Or as opposed to last week, when they were attempting the impossible from their perspective to feed the 5,000, but it wasn't a life or death situation. Here, their very lives are on the line. And here, at least from their perspective, the Lord Jesus is not with them physically. And so here is an opportunity for them to learn a lesson. I said last week was an opportunity for them to learn a lesson. But that was more like classroom. That was more pop quiz. This here is like the midterm. This is like finals. This is like the real thing. Because the disciples are going to finally figure out something this week that they didn't get last week when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000. They are growing, but they have yet to complete the dots. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we wrap up here this morning. They are going to get the big picture. The light bulb is going to go on when we're done with the text this morning. And I hope for us practically that... It does as well in this sense. Not that you won't or don't understand what I'm saying, but that we'll be able to translate the classroom style education and then take that into our lives and be able to rely upon that understanding of who God is and how he works when we're going through the very same kinds of storms in our own lives. I think it's important to note before we jump into the text one quick thing that we don't know from the Gospel of Mark but we know from the Gospel of John that after Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 the crowd tried to grab hold of him to force him to be king and Jesus knowing that that was their purpose and knowing that it was not time for that kind of thing not ever his plan in this coming in this initial coming Anyway, we're told here kind of abruptly in verse 45 where we pick up in Mark chapter 6. It says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before him. So they're going to head out in the boat before Jesus, and he will rejoin them later on. But at this point, they're on their own. He's going to make them go before him, it says, to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, verse 46, he departed to the mountain to pray. So what I wanted you to notice there is how quickly he sort of rushes them, hustles them onto the boat and gets the 12 out of there. Of course, Mark's favorite word, immediately. He no sooner finishes this incredible, miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that he wants to get them out of there. The third word there is he made them. It's a strong word. It means to compel or to force. It's like, hurry up, let's go uh, urgently onto the boat and getting them away from the situation, which would make sense if what he was doing was reverting back to where we were a few weeks ago where they just got back from their missions trip and it's like, all right, enough ministry for the day, guys. Go get on a boat and go get some rest. And he's protecting them um, from just the wear and tear of ministry, so to speak, but that's not what he's doing. Because we know in taking them away from the crowd, he's actually going to be sending them into a storm, which is what we'll look at here in just a few minutes. But knowing Jesus and knowing that he knew that, the question would arise, why would he do that? And here's the short answer, and then let me explain. The short answer is that sometimes God allows things or does things in our lives that may not feel so good, may not from our perspective seem so good, but they might actually protect us from something that would be far worse. Because as I mentioned before, the crowd wants to make Jesus king, but not the kind of king that Jesus had come to be. They wanted to use his popularity to overthrow Rome's oppression and occupation there in Israel. In other words, they want a political messiah. They want a political king. They wanted to establish an earthly kingdom, and Jesus didn't want his disciples getting caught up in any of that. Now add to that at this point, remember, the disciples had at this point a fairly immature understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. They didn't quite grasp, as I said, they didn't quite connect the dots fully at this point. They're following him and they're committed but they're not exactly sure his purpose. Remember, at times, they're arguing over which one is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? Maybe who's going to be on the right hand and on the left hand of him was the argument. Even in Acts 1, here's something for you Bible students to take into consideration. Go read Acts 1 when you get home. Even after his death and his resurrection at the beginning of Acts, just as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, he's giving instructions for his disciples and he says hey wait here in jerusalem for the baptism of the holy spirit and they ask him when are you going to restore the kingdom they still even at that point weren't really getting it he had already established the kingdom of god on earth it was a spiritual kingdom and they were the ones heading it up when <laughs> right now but they were still thinking about an earthly kind of kingdom even as late as acts chapter one and so perhaps, if he doesn't get them away from this crowd, they're not going to start to have an impact on the way that the disciples are thinking. And that is that the crowd, they come to Jesus on the basis of what he will do for them 
materially. Feed us food, give us bread, give us stuff, do miracles. Or politically, let's overthrow Rome. You can be our king. They're approaching Jesus for what he can do for them now, not in what Jesus had come to do for those people. And so Jesus doesn't want the disciples picking up on that mentality. Almost always in the Bible, the crowd, so to speak, is up to no good. And they're fickle as well. One minute, here they are, and they are in John 6, which is the same sort of parallel story. They want to make Jesus king, but within a day, they turn on him when he won't become king, when he won't give them what they want, what they think they want for their lives. And then the very sad, sad statement there, most of his disciples, not the 12, followed him no more. And if people come to Jesus on the basis of, well, it's going to be a wonderful life, on the basis of it's going to be smooth sailing, on the basis of what he will do for me, what he will give to me, then what that will produce, for the most part, like the crowd, is a bunch of temporary disciples. And it's a huge problem in the body of Christ today. Because so many people are coming to God thinking that you're going to get a promotion at work, or thinking that he's going to take care of your needs, or thinking that he heals broken hearts. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't do those things every once in a while. I'm just saying that's not the main reason why God wants you to come to him. That's not the main reason by any stretch that he came, why his father sent him. Jesus did not come to make your life better or easier per se. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So if that's true, and it is, that he was here to reconcile a lost world unto himself, then his purpose was eternal. His purpose was spiritual, not temporal, not physical. And that's what the crowd was missing. That's the very thing Jesus wanted to protect the disciples from. If God is about, and he is, the eternal, and if God is about the spiritual, and he is, then maybe in part trials and storms are part of God's way of causing me to cling to him when I would otherwise drift into pursuing my own earthly, worldly, material type of pursuits, which could end up causing me to be in a worse situation than I was in the first place. An even worse trial because I'm focused on the things of the world instead of the things of God. So in essence, what he's doing is he is protecting the disciples from that very mentality. And every once in a while, I think, when in a storm, it's very, very good to ask yourself this question. What conceivable possible storm is God protecting me from with this storm? In other words, when you are in a trial, you, you ask yourself, what is it that God is doing here that could be preventing me from something that would be far worse? And that's part of what I think he's doing by sending them out on this boat here. Now, verse 47, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. So the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide, give or take. And they're in the middle of the sea. So what that means is, you know, to the north, it's six and a half miles to the shore. To the south, it's about six and a half miles to the shore. To the east, it's about four miles, and to the west, it's about four miles, right in the middle. That's quite a ways for those of you who have been out on a boat or something like that. 
you've ever experienced something along those lines, that, that's quite a ways. Uh, a while back, I was on a men's camping trip, and our children's ministry director, her husband and I, Mark of Alter, if you've met him, if not, go meet him afterwards, talk to him about this story. And he and I decided it would be cute to swim across the lake. Now, this lake, <laughs> some people know the story, they're laughing at me already. It's about a mile and a half long, at least I thought so. Mark says it's about three quarters of a mile, but I swear it was, a th it was a mile and a half, maybe two and a half mile. I mean, it was a long ways. You ever tried to swim across a lake before? One thing that you are confronted with right away is you, you don't get to stop and take a break. Did you know that? I didn't know that until I was about halfway across the lake. I'm like, you can't get out of the pool. You can't hold onto the railing at this point. There's nothing you can do. You have to just keep swimming. And we did finally make it across, obviously. And uh, a brother had to come pick us up in a boat to get us back on the other side later on. Another time I was out on the bay fishing. And we were done with our day. We were going to come on in. And the engine broke. Now, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. So I turn to my buddy. I'm so naive. I'm like, so what do we do now? He's like, you pick up a row. And I'm like, well, how far out are we? He said about 10, 12 miles. And I'm like, oh, big deal. What's that going to take, like an hour to get there? And I did get home that night. And my wife did clean that fish and cook that fish for me at about midnight that night. That was a brutal challenge. You get tired physically. And yet, in both of those instances, when I swam across the lake, when we had to row in from being out there fishing, both those instances, that was relatively calm water that I was dealing with. We know from Matthew's gospel that what they're facing here is a, a storm of such severity that Matthew's gospel says that it literally tossed the boat. It tossed them. Like a young person, like one of my Wednesday night kids tosses a dodgeball at me. That's how powerful the waves are in tossing this boat back and forth. And so you're like, you got to be kidding me. This is quite a storm. Where is Jesus in all this? Well, end of verse 47 says, And he was alone on the land, and then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. This is fascinating to me when you look at this. Now you think about the fact that he's at least three to four miles. He's on land. He's not with them. He's at least three to four miles away. It's at nighttime. There are no lights out there on the sea. It's pitch black. I mean, even in broad daylight, it would be hard to see them. So how does Jesus see them in the dark? Well, the same way that God sees us, the same way that God sees into your heart this morning, because he is God that he's able to do that. I think that's something that's very important because notice it says he saw them. And not only that, he saw them what? Straining. We need to remember any time that we're in a storm, that we're in a trial, that the Lord Jesus never, ever, ever loses sight of you. His eyes are always locked on you. And actually, it's for that very reason that I find this passage so fascinating. Because remember, Jesus is the one who sent his disciples out there in the first place, which means that he sent them directly into the storm. Because he's not just the savior in the storm, he's also the sender of the storm as well. It's not like the storm takes Jesus by surprise. Whoa, what's going on? How did that happen? That's not what I was planning on. No, God never does that. 
God never uh, misplaces his car keys or leaves his sweater at church. Nothing gets by him, and so he knows every time that this kind of thing is absolutely going to happen. He sent them, and all along he sees them, and so we must conclude that storms, in this storm in particular, and storms in general, are a part of God's will for our lives. Nobody gets to avoid these things. Nobody gets to avoid circumstances in our lives where our lives sometimes are tossed back and forth. Even, and this is very important, even, and maybe even especially when we are smack dab in the middle of God's will. And the reason why that perspective is so important is because sometimes we can develop a view of God's will where what we think about it is that it's a virtually trouble-free kind of life. You know, where maybe there are a few clouds, a few sprinkles, you might have to put on a windbreaker because it gets a little cold, but a huge storm, the Christian life, that can't be. And yet here are the disciples, they are literally in the middle of God's will. They're in the middle of the sea, and Jesus sent them there. So they are literally in the middle of God's will, and yet they're caught here in the middle of this storm. Now, my idea of being in the middle of God's will is very different than being sent out in a storm. How about you? I might be out on a lake, but I'll tell you what, there wouldn't be waves in my idea of God's will because I get seasick real easily. So there's not a ripple on that lake if I'm in the center of God's will. And maybe we're fishing, but I don't want to do the work because I hate entanglements and webs and all those kinds of things. So the fish, I say, they just jump right up out of the lake and right onto the barbecue. It's just easy. And we're just watching, you know, perpetually watching March Madness on a floating plasma screen and I'm eating pizza that has no calories in it at all. That is my idea of smooth sailing. That's my idea of when I'm in the center of God's will, I would think that life wouldn't be so hard. And if my thought and if your thought about God's will for our lives means that it's going to be smooth sailing, then we have set ourselves up for severe disappointment. We have set ourselves up to be despondent, to be one of those people that shakes our hands to the fist and says, why? Why would you allow me to go through this kind of thing? You look at the entirety of the book of Acts. They never escape the storm. They go from one storm to the next, to one beating to the next. Someone is taken out. Someone has moved over here. Plans not going the way that they want them to. The whole thing. You look at the epistles. We're wrapping up Philippians in the men's study on Wednesday nights. And you got a man who's writing from a Roman prison awaiting execution, the Apostle Paul, and the subject of the letter is joy. It's joy. He's writing about joy, chained 24-7 in a bottomless dungeon, dark pit. And he's writing about the joy of the Lord. That's a whole New Testament. There's nobody, you know, out on one of those inner tubes in the Bahamas in the New Testament. They're all going through it, every single one of them. And that's the point. That's the point of the life that we live. It's just a part of the Christian life. It comes with the territory. If the testing of our faith, as James said, produces patience, then this is a prerequisite of the maturation process for Christians. Not just trials, by the way, because trials are one thing, but the duration of the trials. 
Because a lot of people will think, well, yeah, I know, I gotta go through trials, but come on, this has been lasting forever. This has been lasting for 19 years. This has been lasting for 19 weeks. I've been out of work for four months. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, the duration of it is part of it. Seemingly, the Lord, like in his providence and his sovereignty, sometimes we think he doesn't get it. We think somehow he's not understanding, he's not responding as quickly as we would want him to. And yet, I would suggest that Jesus not only sends the storm, but he also determines the length of time that we're supposed to be in the storm. Because notice that he delays the rescue here. It says there, end of verse 48, now about the fourth watch of the night. This is probably about 3 a.m. Remember, they set off when evening came. That's probably 7 or 8 o'clock at night, whenever they had finished picking up after the feeding of the 5,000. So that tells us that no doubt these guys have been rowing against the waves, against the wind, against the storm, 6, 8, 9, 10 hours at this point. And remember, they already went into this incredibly exhausted where they needed a vacation as is. And then the day before, obviously, was a very long day, very, very long day. Now they're out there rowing as hard as they can. They're probably soaking wet. They're probably freezing cold. Their bodies are probably aching sore from the rowing and all this. It's just a miserable situation. And so you wonder, well, okay, where is the Lord? And why does he wait so long in all of this? Why does he come at the fourth watch? How about the first or the second watch? And it does seem like in our lives as Christians that Jesus kind of shows up like at the last second, doesn't he? Like just when I'm, I'm done, I can't go anymore, Lord. It's about then sometimes that he seems to show up. And it's not without purpose. Because in some ways he wants us to try and use all we got. He allows our faith to be tested. He wants us to know that he's going to come through. And how will we learn that? any other way except to be stretched to the limits of what we think he will or won't do in that situation. Except to go, okay, I'm going to go, I'm all the way there, Lord, I can't go anymore. And then he shows up. And then each time, by the way, he can take you just a little bit further. Just to stretch you just a little bit. That's how you build muscles. You just go a little bit more each time, right? You just go a little further and you run each time. Same thing spiritually. He just takes you just a little bit further each time. And then there's something that is revealed about your God in the process of that. It's been said, when a man comes to the end of himself, he comes to the beginning of God. And that is very true. That it's about at the point where you say, I just can't go anymore, that then that's when God kind of steps in. Almost like he sees you straining, and right now he sees in your heart you straining to make something happen in your own strength, and it's like he's on the side going, okay, are you done straining, Captain? You ready for me to get into the boat now? Which is exactly what he's waiting for with these guys. It tells us here in the end of verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. In other words, it's not until they cry out to him that he ultimately then comes to him. He just kind of casually appears to them as an option. Oh, could cry out. <laughs> so he would have just passed them by and they cry out. That's what happens. That's when he stops. It says, verse 49, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And you might want to put your finger on that part there, it is I. Because we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. Now let me clarify one thing about this story that's very important for Christians to know which is, did Jesus actually walk 
on the water here? Of course he did. You know, it's all too often that I hear people try and dismiss away the miracles of the Lord Jesus with even more foolish scenarios. You ever seen these people do log rolling competitions on television? You ever seen that? It's kind of like seesaw, but on water with logs. You got one guy on one side and one on the other, and they try and, you know, with their feet, push the log in a certain direction to get the other guy to fall off. Well, there are some people that say that Jesus didn't actually walk on water. He just kind of, you know, steered a log on water out to the disciples in a storm. Okay, if he could do that, then he's God anyway. I don't really care. Make a difference to me whether he could walk on water or surf on a storm. It is just as miraculous, so it doesn't make any difference to me at all. Jesus here is doing a couple of very important things. He is showing by walking on the water that he has power over nature. But more important even than that, more important than Jesus walking on the sea, very specifically, please listen, he's not just walking on the sea, he's walking on the storm. And those are two completely different things. Because to the disciples, the waves were over their head. But to Jesus, they were underneath his feet. In other words, in other words, the very thing they were so afraid of, what was freaking them out, the waves, the water, the storm, and the wind, he is on top of it. It's like he's saying, hey, your problem this morning, your trial, your difficulty, that's my sidewalk. That's like the people mover at the airport that just gets him quicker to his destination for the Lord Jesus. Whatever it is that is difficult for you in your life, as impossible as it is to you, he's saying, listen, I'm on top of that. I'm on top of it as it relates to your life. He didn't need to walk on water to show off. He'd already demonstrated that he had power over nature. He is literally, quite literally, using their fear to say, I'm bigger than even your fear. And that's why oftentimes God has to sort of graduate us as Christians to tougher challenges along the way. Some of you could testify to the fact that, well, you go through some trials and then they kind of cease over time. No, they don't. They just get bigger as Christians, don't they? They only get bigger. He only takes us through more. But think about it. How could God show you how big he was if he never brought you through things that were big from our perspective. Jesus would later tell his disciples, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So there are some things that for us are impossible, but he's saying I'm bigger than anything that you'll ever find yourself thrown into, which is exactly what they failed to learn last time. To my point, look at the last two verses. It says, then when he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because of their, their heart was hardened. They did not understand the loaves. There's something that they should have understood about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that they did not understand because their hearts were hardened. Now, some of what this tells me is it's very possible for a believer to be a believer and live with a hardened heart, to live a life 
where you live constantly in doubt, constantly in fear, constantly without a lot of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible. It's possible to live a life where instead of looking upward to him for every situation, you're merely looking out at all the problems. You're looking down at the storm. You're being taken by the waves instead of being focused on him. And we know from Matthew's gospel that's exactly what happened to Peter. I find it interesting if this is the gospel that Peter dictated to John Mark, if this is Peter's memoirs, that this part of the story isn't included here. I don't know why one way or the other why Peter would not have included it here. But we know that Peter said to the Lord Jesus when they identified it was him, he, he said, hey, command me to come out and walk to you and I will. And Jesus said, come. And we know that initially Peter did walk on water, but not very long. He began to look at the waves. He began to realize the wind and the, the storm. And he began to get distracted by everything around him except Jesus. He took his eyes off of the Lord Jesus and he got his eyes onto the storm, onto the problems, onto my trials, onto my difficulties, whatever I'm facing. And then he began to sink. Now that's a whole other sermon. But what I think is very important for us to know from that example is that when you look at Peter, the problem was he took his eyes off of the Lord Jesus. And when we're in a storm, we have to keep our eyes on him, not on all these other things. And please don't take this like I'm talking to you personally because it's my problem also. But sometimes we can get so caught up in whining about our problems and telling a hundred million people about our problems that we never focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ. We never actually ask him. We never actually pray. I've told a hundred people about my problems. Why isn't God intervening? Because you actually haven't talked to God about your problem. You're not focused too on him and what he would do and his will for our lives. They failed to do that here in this instance. And according to Mark, it's because, look at it again, they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand the gravity of the feeding of the 5,000. They did not understand the implication of the feeding of the 5,000. Now remember I told you to kind of keep your finger on it is I, right? Because that's what this whole thing comes down to. That's the key. That's what they didn't understand about the loaves. If you're going through a trial and I come and knock on my door and you say, who's there? And I say, it is I, don't be afraid. That's not very reassuring. You're going to be like, go away, Joe. I'm going through a difficult time right now. So that's the key is when he says it is I, what is he actually saying? Is he just saying Jesus is here or is he saying so much more than that when he does that? Who is he? Who is it is I that is speaking? What is he getting at? What were they missing? What weren't they understanding? What wasn't quite clicking? Here it is. Again, to Matthew's gospel, after the storm, finally, when he calmed the storm, he gets in the boat, then we're told that they said this. They said, truly you are the Son of God, which was to ascribe deity to him. And then it says, and get this, they worshipped him. And if that hasn't happened, go back and check your Bibles. And if I'm wrong, you send me a text later. Go back and check your Bibles. That hadn't happened at any other point where as a group, they worshipped him. Not when he had cleansed the leper, not when he had cast out the legion from the demoniac, not when he had fed the 5,000, not even when he had raised Lazarus from the dead, but here in this particular instance, they worshipped him as a group. Why? Because he came to the rescue. He saved them. 
And that's when it became very real. Max Lucado said, when you recognize God as a creator, you will admire him. When you discover his strength, you will rely on him. But when he saves you, you will worship him. Think about what kind of a shallow relationship we would probably have apart from trials. Seriously, just for a second, think about that. Think about the depths that God can take you only through a trial. Think about the illness. Think about the relationship. Think about whatever it is that is the immovable force in your life. That it just causing you to even think about it. Your skin crawls. You shudder at the mere idea. Ever been knocked over by a wave before? It's one of the few forces, water, that we can come into contact with that we have no power over. I mean, you roll in a wave, those of you who surf, not a single thing you can do. And it is exactly in those moments when you get the horrible news about the relative who's sick or your own news or when you just lost your job and you don't have a dime in the bank, it's in those very moments, in the times in which your soul, your heart is broken, where you are broken, where you are miserable, where you don't know what to do next, I found in my own life, that is a place where not only God meets you, he meets you in a place where only he can. Nobody else can. There's no book, there's no seminar, there's no person you can talk to in those moments. And that's exactly what they're designed for. They're designed for him to reveal himself to you in a way that nobody else could. And it couldn't happen with that kind of depth if it wasn't for a trial. I don't want any of my trials to go away now. I've come to a point where I'm like, I have certain things in my life, I don't like them. In some ways, I, I kind of wish they would ease up, but I don't want them to go away because I understand that it's a place where God can meet me in a place where nobody else can, and it's where he especially reveals himself to me. Not just who he is, that he is God, but that he knows that much about me. And what a great security that is ultimately. Think about it from this vantage point, and I'll close with this. Think about it. If the disciples were met there by Jesus Christ in this moment, they'd seen him do miracles before. But now he comes to them when they were without him, when they were on their own, and when they were afraid like they were going to die. And when he saves them, he shows them he could save them in their life, from their death, ultimately even from their sins. And what greater lesson is there to learn than that? In other words, no matter what I'm facing today, what greater lesson is there to be assured that God loves me in the midst of the worst trial when nobody else can do that? That ultimately, this trial is not going to beat me. This trial is not going to be the death of me because Jesus is going to have the final say in my life. And that's what he shows us here. Father, we do. We thank you.